Hello and welcome back to the Cloister Bell podcast hosted by Rob and Liam. In this podcast we will be discussing my favourite Peter Davison story from season 21, it's Resurrection of the Darks. The TARDIS Cloister Bell. Imminent disaster. The Cloister Bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. But the TARDIS doesn't have battle no, stations. No, 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 nothing along those lines. The Cloister Bell? Oh, no. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. Hope you're all fine and dandy. I'm Liam, and, of course, I'm joined by Rob. Hi, Rob. Hi, Liam. And Good ha- to be back. Yep, yeah, certainly is. And how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Uh, I've had... I've had a week off work with a few days off either end of that, so it's been like an extended week. It's been pretty good. Oh, fantastic! Not helped by the fact that um, we're going into we've gone into another lockdown, which we're all enjoying immensely, um, and not not going bonkers. Um, it's it's only a few days in. How are you coping? Well, to be fair, I don't really pay attention because I still get to go to work, the kids still get to go to school. Mm. It's life as usual for me, really. Oh, no, no, that's good, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, because I'm still working. Um, and I, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I'm still able to, at the moment, I'm still able to go into the office. Uh, that's good. Yeah, which I'm pleased about, because it, it does make a, a huge difference. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and in terms of the listeners, I hope uh, I hope you're all coping as, as well you ca- as well you can and um even though it's uh, it's still strange times you know um you know we can at least we can still go out and exercise and and all the rest of it so yeah. hope hope everyone's fine and on that upbeat note um it's uh, some some celebrities have uh, i don't know celebrities it feels to do them a disservice but some very talented people have recently passed away um Regular listeners of the podcast may have uh, discerned that I'm a bit of a Bond fan. And Sean Connery, Sir Sean Connery, recently passed away at the age of 90, 1930 to 2020. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, sad to see him go because he was a fantastic actor. Uh, not, obviously, I think he'll always be remembered as James Bond, but you know, he, he's done all sorts. Um, so it's, it's, you know, a good long life. Uh, but you know, still sad to see, uh, to see him go. Very sad. I feel like most of my childhood, he, he's always seemed quite old. What was he in when we were kids? Maybe like the Avengers. <laughs> oh like yes, that. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah that, that, I mean that film is atrocious, but sort of like a guilty pleasure yeah. of mine. It's one of those because totally. uh, he always tried to do you know a, a role. Well, he'd always try to do roles that somehow appealed to him or he could add something in there. So appearing as... What was the character's name? Sir, Ros- Sir, Sir Something de Winter. Um, mm, sounds familiar. Yeah, because um, his whole thing was he was trying to control the weather. As the villain of the Avengers. Yeah, the, the movie's pretty bad, but it was always a guilty pleasure. I did, I did. Yeah. And I think I feel it, he, he gets zapped by lightning and then gets sucked into the sky at the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. And uh, I mean, t- to be honest, I think it's. I think he actually he's one of the big reasons why I find that film watchable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's also appeared in good films as well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is is probably another that immediately comes to mind. Um, mm-hmm. The Untouchables, and he was a fantastic actor. But one thing that always sticks in my mind was I think it was two thousand and six. He re- he 
received the AFI's Lifetime Achievement Award. And when he was giving his speech there, it was great and he was talking about what it was to be an actor and his history and so on. But the thing that always sticks in my mind is that when he was giving the speech, he talks about how he received his big lucky break, which was at the age of five when he was taught how to read. It's a you know it's a, it's a simple thing that we perhaps take for granted, but it was it was just great to hear him talk about that how you know that that ability to to learn how to read completely changed his life. So yeah, that's uh, so Sean Connery sadly passed away, and then recently Jeffrey Palmer, one of those actors who obviously not as as, as big as this, Sir Sean, but um, he were you know had a long long career. He died uh, recently, 1927 to 2020. He was aged 93. And he's just one of those actors who, you know, I, I don't know about you, but whenever he appeared in something, he, you just, you knew, you knew it was, you know, it was going to be good. He just, he always gave a good performance and there was just somehow a lift. I always l- loved him as an actor. He's had a, a few appearances in Doctor Who, hasn't he? Yes, he has, yeah. He's, he's appeared in three. Um, he appeared as Masters in Doctor Who and the Silurians. Um, in fact, I think he's because he's great in that. And if, I, if memory serves, I think he's the first victim who falls under the uh, the Silurians virus. Yeah, he's great in that. Very memorable. He play he plays the administrator in the Mutants, uh, which is another John Pertwee story. He's only in episode one. The Mutants isn't a story I particularly like. And then fun- funnily enough, because it's at the very beginning of the story, he gets killed. And it's as soon as Jeffrey Palmer gets killed at the beginning of episode one, the, the quality of the story plummets as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, um, and yeah, he was a, he, he played Copton, Copton? Captain Hardacre in uh, Voyage of the Damned. He was also in Tomorrow Never Dies, wasn't he? Yeah, I was going to mention that. Opposite yeah. Judy Dench. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing, because he's appeared, you know, he was in Faulty Towers. He appeared in an episode in Faulty Towers. Uh, the Doctor Who was eager to get sausages for breakfast. He was in uh, the final episode of Blackadder Goes Forth. Uh, he played yeah. General Haig. Uh, he was in one of my all-time favourite films, The Madness of King George. Um, and it's a sitcom which gets a lot of... I mean, it went on for years. Um... And it's a sitcom which doesn't really get an awful lot of recognition it's as time goes by. And, uh, you know, yeah. he was... The, he was uh, of course, the opposite Judy Dench in um, his appearance in um, James Bond mm-hmm. felt like an Easter egg to that. <laughs> it did, yeah. It did, it did feel awfully deliberate. Because for, for those that don't know, as time goes by, stars Judy, Den- Judy Dench and Jeffrey Palmer. And it's one of those... It's, I mean, it's not the most rip-tickling sitcoms ever but I always just found it very pleasant to watch and you know um, and Judy Dent was a big part of that and Jeffrey Palmer um, he also provided um, a uh, spoken word narration at the beginning of the um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood song Welcome to the Pleasure Dome the fruitless mix so you know he's Ooh. yeah so he's appeared in television uh, he's appeared in films and he's also appeared in a, a famous pop record uh, so yeah, very sorry to see Jeffrey Palmer uh, go as well. I mean, again, you know, ninety-three, a, a nice long life, but nonetheless, it's it's still you know it's it's still sad when they um, you know, people pass away regardless of their age, and especially when it, when they're a public figure and you've enjoyed their their talent for for many many years. It's uh, yeah, it's a shame. Um, before we go on, Rob, is there anything anything you'd like to mm, to raise? What or? have I been to? Mm. Well, no, um, 
I'm trying to think what have I watched recently. Oh, uh, have you watched Borat 2 yet? No. I don't think I am, no. to be perfectly honest, because I remember I went to the, uh, the cinema to see the first Borat movie, and you know, I thought it was fine and it was funny, but I was surprised that a second film's come out, and to be perfectly honest, I'm sick to death of seeing the adverts. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I wanted to watch it. I thought, oh, you know, it's, it is what it is. It's probably going to be just a repetition of the first, which it kind of is, hmm. uh, but it just resonates 2020. It's it's amazing how I can't believe I'm saying this about Borat too, but it's amazing how um, production begins before lockdown essentially, and um, before COVID spreads, and the narrative takes shape around that. So I think it's a it's quite a standout piece for 2020. All right, okay. I might get it's a bit interesting. The twist at the end, the way it, obviously. Obviously, it's a it's a fictional narrative, hmm. but um, a lot of the people involved, and um, I know this from interviews after the films came out, that um, these people weren't in on it. So um, there's a lot of cringe moments. Um, the fertility dance. I think people know what I'm talking about here. They've seen it. God, you just know it's coming, and you're watching it through your hands. There's some good moments. <laughs> Right. Okay. Yeah. I think that's the thing as well. It's uh, I've I've kind of gone off cringy comedy, and I, I um not that I think it's it's appalling and shouldn't be made or whatever. It's just uh, funny enough because I have been I have been watching some comedy series recently, but um it's sort of comfort comedy. So yeah, you know I watch I've been rewatching Black Books, um, which I really really like. Uh, I've been watch rewatching Spaced. Because that's always good. Oh. I've always loved that, and uh, and then going way way back. Oh, I mean, it's weird to think that Space came out in nineteen ninety nine and two thousand two thousand one. Round about that. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's just geez. Um, it still holds up. I still think it's fantastic. Um, and then going way back, I've been rewatching The Good Life. Ah. <laughs> you know, so good. good old sitcom from the seventies. Um, so that's it in terms of in terms of comedy. I, I have been. Um, one thing I've been doing is rewatching the Alien movies, but what I'm what I'm doing because I've got those on Blu-ray and I'm taking my time with them. So I'm watching the films, the theatrical versions, and then the director's cuts, and then I'm going through every single special feature that there's on there. So I'm listening to the soundtracks and not all, not all in one sitting and all in one night. You know, it's just over a course That's of great. yeah days, yeah. and then listening to uh, the director's commentary and things like that because I haven't done that yet. So I, thought, oh, um, I really want to talk about it now, but we we shouldn't. Maybe we'll do a, um, an alien podcast one day. Yeah, I'd like that actually. Yeah, actually, yeah. if uh, if there's if anyone's got any interest in us, because I know that this is primarily a, a Doctor Who podcast, and obviously that will be our main focus. But if anyone would like us to take the opportunity to maybe delve into other science fiction or fantasy or whatever, that you know, we'll more than happily just talk about that. Um, yeah. In any capacity, I mean, of course, I would happily talk about it on this podcast. Mm. Of course, I don't want to oversaturate it with other stuff. Um, if we can do it in a different capacity, on another podcast or mm. YouTube or whatever, um, yeah, I'm open to any of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, would that be more of a serious one? Because um, where does Cloyster Bell fit? Is, is that in the cringe comedy genre? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's times when we've just sort of been recording and then, you know, just... 
you know, we'll say a joke and just give a big hearty laugh. And it has crossed my mind of just going, do listeners actually find any of this stuff remotely funny? Just like, you know, I'm bellowing with a mighty laugh and listeners going, wasn't that funny, but okay. Um, Maybe if I edit out all the laughs and I'll think maybe we've got really dry humour. Just reminds me that funny enough, there's, uh, it's in the second series. It, it's uh, an episode of Space that I watched today, actually. Um, there's a bit where they're talking about it's all about change. You know, they, they're going, they're going to go out, prove their life, and all the rest of it. And what they're doing is uh, it's all about change. And then Daisy goes, and not the small kind. And they laugh. And then they go, why are we laugh? Why is that funny? I don't know. And they turn and leave. Uh, you know. <laughs> I love that moment. It's just little bit great things like that. But you just go, yeah, why is that funny? I don't know. It just is. And let's move on. Um, shall we crack on? Yep. Crack on. Crack on. Uh, well, actually, uh, before we continue with the main point, um, it's just to let you know that we have, and I'm addressing the listeners here, just to let you know that we've already discussed our favourite William Hartnell, Patrick Trout and John Pertwee and Tom Baker stories. So if you like us... If you'd like to hear us discuss the Aztecs, the Crusade, the Tomb of the Cybermen, the Invasion, Frontier in Space, the Sea Devils, City of Death, and the Seeds of Doom, do check those out. Um, we, Our previous podcast to this, we were discussing Rob's favourite Peter Davison story, which was Earthshock. So that's in there as well. There are many other stories in our archive, including all the Jodie Whittaker stories and several Big Finish adventures. And just the social media stuff. We're on Facebook. I still can't believe people use Facebook, but there you are. <laughs> Apparently people do. Facebook.com forward slash Cloisterbell. Of course, we're on Twitter at Podcast Bell. We're on Instagram, Cloister underscore Bell. And our website is CloisterBellPodcast.com. As well as the socials, um, we're on the service called Discord. Mm-hmm. And we'll have a little server there and you can chat there. We're on it actually now. And Liam, I'll just send you a new exclusive emoji. Um, and there's a little story behind that emoji, actually, today. <laughs> right, okay. I'm waiting for it. This is the winning emoji. It hasn't loaded. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. This is going to be good. Ah, uh, technical difficulties. Um, Liam, uh, you are not in the same chat room as me. <laughs> Eh? I thought I am. Oh, are, you, are you in the Are you in the live text chat group? Hang on, wait a second. I think <laughs> this is so professional. It is, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. We should be in the same thing now, aren't we? We're, well, we are live in the recording studio. Yeah. And then if you tick live text chat above that, oh it'll yes, take you in. Okay. All right, and it's the Davros emoji. It, yes, so we have our own exclusive emojis on Discord, uh-huh. um, all Doctor Who ones, and I've chose this particular version, Davros, because we ran a poll on Twitter today, and we asked who played the best Davros. Uh, of course, there's been four on-screen um, main actors for Davros: Michael Wisher in Genesis of the Daleks, David Goodison, Destiny of the Daleks. Terry Malloy from 1984 onwards and Julian Bleach in the modern era. So 178 people have voted in fourth place at 1%. Um, David Goodison, the one-off portrayal he did in Destiny of the Daleks. Mm-hmm. Is that a bit unfair? 
It's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a funny one. I think I think he has the unfortunate distinction that you know he follows the actor who uh, created the part, and then he's immediately followed by actors who you know who who stamp their own um, because he I think he was basically told try and emulate Michael Wisher as much as possible, and then it is hard to make a distinction. It, yeah, and then and then he's immediately followed by you know the, the other two actors who, who make it bring their the, own. Bring their own to it. Yeah. I mean, so so it's yeah. a bit of a shame. I mean, because I actually one I like Destiny of the Daleks, and two I I think he gives a good performance. Um, I think it suits the story very well, and you believe he's the same character from the previous Dalek story. So mm. I I think he does you know I think he does a good job. I just think it's rather unfortunate that you know. Uh, unfortunately. Um, we have to um, adhere to democracy. <laughs> no, let's do let's do a recount. <laughs> uh, in third place, Julian Bleach. Mm-hmm. Um, again, uh, he didn't really stand a chance against some of the others. He's only had two appearances uh, to date. Um, yeah, yeah. Although, yes. I mean, having said that, though, I mean the. So obviously the w- the way that this is going, Michael Wisher, who only appeared once, appears higher in the poll. Um, it's always funny. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think he I think he is good at playing Davros, but uh, I think perhaps the the fault that he has, and it's not his fault. Uh, I think maybe that the stories he appears in aren't particularly great. So in second place after Julian Bleach. Um... I was surprised by this result. It's a close one, thirty-five percent. Terry Malloy. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, he was Davros. He was my first um, experience at, at, at Davros on TV. Mm-hmm. His portrayal, in comparison to the originals, he's a he's a guy in a mask, and the voice he's given could potentially be very kind of monotone. But he brings he's very emotive with his body and his his expressions and his stance and his voice and his tone i don't know it's it's a it's it must be hard to convey the feelings davros has under that suit yeah i mean malloy expresses all that i think what we get with terry malloy's performance of davros is he he gives us the manic psychotic element of the character um, because I mean yes, uh, do, don't get me wrong. Because there were moments when Terry Malloy was uh, was uh, nuanced, but when I think when I think of his Davros compared to the others, I tend to remember the sort of the moments when he's ranting more. You know, th- I mean th- the story that we're going to be talking about today, Resurrection of the Daleks. The, the, you know, there are one or two moments when he's basically just screaming at the screen, and I, you know, th- so I get a real sense of of the mania of the character with Terry Malloy's performance. He does have these moments where he's enraged at the Doctor and he's, he's furious. Yes, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. They're the kind of moments I like. Yeah, yeah, they are good, yeah. Um, so at first place, it's Davros number one, Michael Wisher at 46%, mm. um, with his one-off performance in Genesis. Yeah, um, he's certainly my choice. 
And again, this isn't this isn't against any of the other actors because no one's failed at playing the part. All the actors who have, have played it have done a phenomenally good job. They're all very good. Um, but my preference is Michael Wisher because I think you get a he you get a really good sense of he. I mean, he creates the part and it's fully rounded and it's it's brilliant. You, you know, you get the you get the menace and the danger and the intelligence and the emotion of the character. It just feels fully rounded and a much more believable character. Whereas with the other actors who have played the part, I feel that they extrapolate and focus on other elements of the character. Whereas with Michael Wisher, you get a full, there's a full person there. Um, which I think is probably aided with the writing, if, if I'm said, but he, he just he just plays that perfectly. So was your was your was your choice Terry Malloy? It was. I'm sorry, but it was. How <laughs> <laughs> very disappointed. <laughs> no, that's absolutely fine. I mean, it's it's not a stinging choice. I mean, you know, Terry Malloy was really good. So, 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 for your what's your reason for for him being your favourite Davros? Uh, because he's my Davros. I don't know. <laughs> he was, and he's done more stories. Mm, yeah. No. That. Yeah. That is true. Yeah, I remember when uh, when Davros did come back in the new series. A lot of people were disappointed that they, they that they recast because they thought Terry Malloy deserved to still play the part. Yeah, I mean, I have a different opinion slightly to that now, but I always um, it was unfortunate that he didn't return. It would have been interesting. Mm-hmm. I think I said on Twitter today. There's um, there's very few tangible links to the classic era. There's established actors. Um, that aren't returning you know every week we get all these new characters why not bring some of the old occasionally yeah it's been it's been a long time since the new series came back and a lot of the classic isn't revisited or touched upon much which is which is a bit bizarre yeah i think that was probably one occasion when bringing a past actor into the part could have could have worked it would, yeah, it would have been interesting if Terry Malloy was, was brought back yeah. into the TV series. But, you know, it is what it is. And, yeah. Um... yeah, it is. Um, Julian Bleach is brilliant mm-hmm. um, yeah, in his yeah. own way. Mm-hmm. Really menacing. But Yeah, I think also, I think Terry Malloy stands out as well because not only did, has he, has he uh, so far, at the time of recording, he's the, he's the one actor who's played the part most on the television series. But mm. he's also played the part in, on the Big Finish audio adventures as well. Yeah. So, so if there's if if there's one actor who has continued with the part and developed it much further, it's it's obviously Terry Malloy. Yeah, um, he's most recently returned to the Time War in um, the Eighth Doctor Time War box set, Volume Four, mm-hmm. and there's a two-parter called Palindrome with Malloy in it. It's meant to be quite good, but you know I I still need to work through those. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I'm. I'm too busy re- revisiting other stuff for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Don't have time for big finishes. Dirty <laughs> <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, so yes, I'll get around to checking that out soon. I do remember, I think it was shortly before 2005. Um, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I went on Malloy's website and he was selling T-Stick Terminator-esque t-shirts with his face on saying, I'll be back. <laughs> I think I've seen those. They're quite a good design, actually. Yeah, and he didn't come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he did to audio. Yeah, yeah. 
So, um, so today we're discussing my favourite Peter Davison story, which is Resurrection of the Daleks. And there's a plot synopsis. Uh, I haven't written this. What I'm going to do is, when it was Doctor Who's 30th anniversary, uh, BBC World BBC Worldwide released a limited edition tin box set of two stories, which is The Chase and Remembrance of the Daleks. And it also included a booklet, The Daleks, A History from BBC Video. Um, and it contained, you know, just sort of like a brief history of the Daleks and just talking about them. But then it also includes um, uh, plot synopsises of every Dalek sto televised Dalek story up until that point. So I just thought it'd be quite nice if I read... It doesn't, I don't think it actually tells you who wrote this. Hang on. Just one. Yeah. Um... Oh, Andrew Pixley. That's it. Andrew Pixley wrote these. So, uh, courtesy of Andrew Pixley, his plot synopsis of Resurrection of the Daleks is Trapped in a time corridor, the TARDIS is forced down to Dockside London in 1984. Carrying the Doctor, then the cricket-loving fifth incarnation, and his companions, the Australian air hostess Tegan Javanka and an alien youth called Turlo, in a nearby warehouse, an army unit guarding strange objects made of an unearthly material is shown coming face to face with a Dalek. The objects are canisters of a virus developed by the Novellans to destroy the Daleks, for which the Daleks are trying to find a cure. Again, they need the help of their creator Davros, who has spent 90 years held in a cryogenic suspension on board a space station in the future. The Daleks take control of the station with help from a group of humanoid duplicates led by a mercenary called Lytton. This time, Davros is cautious of being used by his offspring and sets about converting the duplicates and Daleks to obey him instead of the Supreme Dalek. Turlo has wandered into the time corridor link between the warehouse and the Dalek spaceship and Tegan has been captured by duplicates of the army unit. The Doctor sets out to execute Davros and stop him from finding a cure for the virus, but fails. Instead, the Doctor is briefly captured by the Daleks so that he can be duplicated and used to assassinate the High Council of the Time Lords. The virus is released, wiping out the Daleks in space and on Earth, and apparently attacking Davros. One of the Dalek duplicates, Stein, breaks through his conditioning and blows up the space station. Exciting stuff. It is, it's a good summary. Um, very spoilery. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, sorry folks, if you haven't watched uh, Resurrection of the Daleks, uh, sod off, watch it, and then come back and listen. Um, yes. So, the cast and crew, uh, the Doctor's played by Peter Davison, Janet Fielding played Tegan, Turlo, Mark Strickson, Colonel Archer was played by Del Henny, Davros, as we've mentioned before, Terry Malloy, Galloway, William Slay, Kisten, Dirty Den, also known as Les Grantham, Lytton, Morris Colburn, Mercer, Jim Findlay, Osborne, Snare Gupta, Professor Laird, Chloe Ashcroft, Sergeant Calder, Philip McGough, Stein, Rodney Buse, the likely lad, and Styles was played by Rula Lenska. Uh, the story was directed by Matthew Robinson. The incidental music was by Malcolm Clark. Um, just, to, just as a side note, he provided uh, the soundtrack for The Sea Devils, which is my favourite Pertwee story, and Earthshock, which was Rob's favourite Davison story. And the writer, like Earthshock, is Eric Saywood. So, first of all, Rob, uh, um, have you ever been to London? Uh, no, well, I've only passed through King's Cross or whatever, but no, I've never been 
for her walk around. Ah, uh, right, okay. No, I was just wondering, because uh, I've been to, to London a few times, and um, once uh, I went down with uh, with a couple of friends, and then we went we went onto Tower Bridge. Um, so we were on Tower Bridge and, and did the tour of that. And then when you come out, you've got the option to see the engines which move which move the bridge. Uh, so I saw that and then came out. And then it was just suddenly I was in a very, very familiar area. It's just <laughs> I got ridiculously excited. And my two mates who aren't into Doctor Who at all, they went, what's the matter? I went, we've got to, we've got to go up here. We've got to go up here. And I was like, right, okay, but why? And I was a bit embarrassed and I didn't tell them. I went, Liam, why are you so interested? And I went, well, the, well, the thing is, right, there's a Doctor Who story called Resurrection of the Daleks. And I went, and it was Film TN. And I went, yes. And he went, that's fine, Liam. It's fine. We can be, it was, anyway, I was, it's like a kid in the candy shop. I was absolutely thrilled. So, I was in Shad Thames and Butler's Wharf, uh, which is the location of London, which is used in this story, and um, and also it's used in, it's 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 partly used in the documentary Thirty Years in the TARDIS as well. So, um, was it deserted? No, there were people around, and the area spruced up, and it doesn't look like a shithole, and it it was disappointing. <laughs> oh. I know the, it's a lovely area of London. It was so disappointing. Oh, it's gone downhill. <laughs> it's gone downhill. It should be this really bleak, depressing <laughs> place of urban decay. Uh, yeah. No, it was. It was great. It was. Uh, I loved being in the area. I mean, one, it's it's a nice area to be in. It's 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 nice and relaxing. I love the fact that they they've still retained the old warehouses and you know spruced them up, and it looks nice. But of course, you know, having resurrection of the Daleks stuck in my head ever since a kid. It was just. But it should be, because it, it wasn't raining either. I thought, it should be depressing here. Everything should be grey and raining and miserable. But it wasn't. It, it wasn't. Was, it and wasn't. then you were all depressed. <laughs> yeah, it was sunny and lovely and just awful as a result. Anyway, um, it's a great area. So if you're a Doctor Who fan, obviously there's going to have that sense, sense of nostalgia. But it's just a nice area of London to be in. So whenever, we're, whenever <laughs> we're allowed to travel... Um, pop down to London and, and check out that area Shad Thames and Butler's Wharf it's, it's quite nice um, so anyway yeah just thought I'd get that out of the way I've I've been to a Doctor Who location um, so yeah the, the 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 story starts off in this very atmospheric way you know we're going down um, this this mysterious area of London which then was completely derelict it was just a part of urban decayed London docklands and warehouses um, and the atmosphere is really palpable I love the, the, the music and I love the direction and the fact that it's raining and everything looks grey you know we're, you know, we're tracking down this area there's, there's a man, uh, we pan over to a man just there on his own rolling up a cigarette and then he's distracted by hearing screens and then we then we just see two men in strange clothing burst from an empty London warehouse only for more men and women to appear, all panic-stricken, apparently no idea where they are, um, and then running away as, as two police constables just emerge from the warehouse as well, and then fire on them with machine pistols. It's very graphic, this story, isn't it? It is incredibly graphic. Um, it's, you know, and if the... So, if this... If this introduction to a story doesn't tell you that this is going to be bleak and hard-hitting, then I don't know what is. It's uh, it's action-packed and, as yeah. I said, atmospheric, and and it's that thing that that Doctor Who does. It, it takes what is um, normal iconography and 
twists it into something horrific. So, seeing two normal police constables in London on the beat. I mean, keeping in mind as well, because this was broadcast in 1984, and for many, many years, um, we in Britain prided ourselves that we had a good police force who were not armed. We didn't have armed, but we had sufficient good police officers who were not armed. So, um, obviously, that it's, it's changed in much more recent years, but at the time when this was broadcast, the fact that you had two seemingly normal police constables armed with machine pistols would have been very weird for a start, and the fact that they, they, they then used them to machine gun down you know, innocent bystanders, I mean, that is shocking. Um, you know, this is a story that clearly isn't going to, you know, hold. It's going, it's going to pack a punch. Um, yeah. It's a very daring choice. Yeah, yeah v- very, very daring. I mean, the last time John Pertwee's um, second series began with a story called Terror of the Autons, and they got into a lot of trouble. The producers, the makers of the show, got into a lot of trouble. Some of the Autons were depicted as uh, as policemen, and there's that brilliant shot where the Doctor's a bit dubious about one of them, leans forward and peels off the face of a policeman to reveal that there's an Auton underneath. You know, this is striking stuff. And as you said, you know, this is years later in Resurrection of the Daleks, and it's still very... um, Yeah. I think in 2020, the police with guns would be a very daring choice for a whole other bunch of reasons. Yeah, but I mean, it's interesting because the most recent Doctor Who story that I can think of which uses uh, policemen uh, is the um, I've forgotten the name of it now. It's the Jodie Whittaker Dalek story. Uh, is that called uh, Resolution? Resolution. That's yeah. it. Yes. Um, they use uh, sort of uh, you know the the the, the Dalek mutant um, takes over a uh, a policewoman. What you get in that story is a sense of the, the disturbing that the Dalek can can mentally control somebody, but you. What's interesting is that now in 2020, it's it's not it, the shock value of having a policeman do despicable things. I mean, yes, it, it's 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 explained in the story that um, that she's being controlled, but it doesn't. I don't think it has the shock value as it did in 1984. And certainly, when I first watched the story as a kid, I mean, there is tremendous shock value, and it's. I, th- I think it's still there actually in 2020. Uh, I still think that this introduction is quite gripping and shocking. And I think that's all part of to do with the, the performances of those involved and the atmosphere and the direction and the music and so on. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're privy to an absolutely awful act. And the thing is, because they're shot down in front of our eyes, I mean, this is strong stuff. Um, yeah. And it, it's interesting that, in terms of Doctor Who history, when you look at what would later be done in Colin Baker's time as the Doctor, I mean, yeah, there were some violent things that were seen and then when the show was cancelled and then brought back, one of the reasons why it said it was cancelled was because it was too horrific. But when you look at stories like this, the Peter Davison era, that level of criticism wasn't wasn't brought onto the series. And then, um, so yeah, so we have this, uh, so we have this very strong introduction, and then the inspector uses a device to make all the dead bodies vanish. So, yeah. like, so we know there's something something sci-fi going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I love this, the effect, the pink glow, the use of the sound effect. It's very simple, but it's effective. And then, yeah. you know, th- events unfold very rapidly. And within minutes, you know, so we've been introduced to a cold-blooded 
you know, uh, a massacre. And then, and then we, and then we're joined to, and then we're taken to a spaceship. You know, so we're in London Docklands, and then we're in the far-flung future in space, and say, okay, how are these two settings going to to marry up? And so we're on a space station, and um, I think this is a case when the, a movie like Alien, which was released in 1979, has really had an impact on on, on science fiction design because. You know, when you had Stanley Kubrick's film, 2001 A Space Odyssey, you know, everything is very clean and clinical and very scientific and maintained. Uh, and that, the design used of that movie obviously had a huge influence on science fiction, both in terms of television and films for, for decades to come. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's still influential now. But in 1979, when you had the movie Alien, that did something completely different. It was this idea that you know um, things could break, you know things were broken down. We you know we you know you had um, sarcastic characters and you know that they were yeah. world weary and things like that. Mm-hmm. So so it feels like that influence of of, of Alien has has influenced has come to influence Doctor Who in, in particularly in this story. I mean you could yeah, say the ship is quite run down. With one exception being the laboratory, mm-hmm. um, but that's explained. You know, that's a separate kind of environment to work in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, you know, and and we're introduced to this this character, you know, who who's just joined the space station, and he's very sort of you know everything's by the books and so on. But uh, Rulalenska's character is just basically look, keep your mouth shut, and you'll be fine. If if no one else complains. Um, then you know why should I? And it's you know it's um, it's very you know the whole thing's very cynical. Mm. Um, but there's something very um, I mean one it's it's all about establishing the tone and the mood of the story. Uh, a lot of these characters are unlikable, but there's something very believable about them. So you know you're drawn into the story that way. And then finally. Uh, we're introduced to the TARDIS crew. So the TARDIS, this is clearly continuing from the ends of uh, the previous story, Frontios. Um, you know, the, the TARDIS is being trapped in a time corridor and the, and the Doctor's trying his best to, to escape it um, and manages to, to land somewhere near the entrance to the time corridor. So that's why the TARDIS ends up landing at Butler's Wharf. Yes, and there is a bit of turbulence on the way. The TARDIS set wasn't on hydraulics, I'm guessing. They just kind of flopped onto the floor at this point. <laughs> yeah, um, sort of TARDIS and turbulence, let's uh, sort of like dance around uh, the scenery. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I think the actors themselves do a very good job. You know, I, I'm not watching it cringing. I think they do a very good job at um, sort of, you know, shaking around all over the place and the camera angles work. I think it's a well-acted and well-directed scene. And then, funny enough, we hear the cloister bell. The cloister bell goes off, and then, uh, and then it, you just... Oh, oh, yes, it did, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's just, and then just Tegan going, "Oh no!" And I was just thinking, "Oh God, she's listening to the podcast." So. Oh yeah, we need to include that on the on the titles. <laughs> yeah, we do. The Tardis crew decide to obviously to investigate, and that's when they come across Stein, played by Rodney Bewes. Um, who is famous for appearing in a sitcom called The Likely Lads, and then later on there was a sequel called Whatever Happened to The Likely Lads. So that was, you know, that was his his claim to fame. It was, it was very long running and very popular sitcom. And Stein is um, defined with this mannerism; he has a bit of a stutter, mm-hmm. and 
this is in contrast with his true identity. Yeah. He's revealed to be a Dalek agent. Mm. Now, I'm curious, is he a sleeper agent at this point? As in, does he himself not know because of the stutter? Or is it all uh, an act? Because he de- he develops the stutter later on when he breaks the Dalek conditioning. Mm. I just wondered uh, at this stage, I w- it was a bit unclear to me whether he knew he was a Dalek agent or not. I think what it is, it's, I think he does know that he's a Dalek agent, but um, because th- what we later find out is that um, the Daleks and their plans to control the entire universe, uh, uh, starting by taking control of Earth, is that they have made these uh, duplicates who are sleeper Dalek agents, and they have been put in place um, in key strategic positions all around the world. And the idea is that obviously they're working for the Daleks, but they are they are they behave perfectly to the originals so i think at this point when we're first introduced to him he's a dalek agent he knows it but he's you know he's perfectly functioning how he should be it's later on when we see him sort of um his mental conditioning starts to break down and the stutter comes and goes um so yeah i, I see what you mean it is a bit of a funny one and it's ma- it's not made entirely clear but the inference that i take is that this was he him. Knows. Yeah. Yeah. This was him functioning as as he should be. Um, but you you have no indication that he is a, a, a Dalek agent. I mean, at this point in the story, that that's the thing that comes as a complete shocker, and in fact is a um, is an episode cliffhanger. Actually, coming coming to that point, I just wanted to ask: Did you watch this as four parts or two parts? Well, I watched it on BritBox, and they have the two part version two 40 odd minute episodes and am i right in thinking this is the vhs version well what happened was the the story was written and made as a four-part adventure as normal but it was re-edited into two 45 minute episodes back in 84 to be shown on um two consecutive wednesday evenings as opposed to the usual thursday and friday uh due to rescheduling around the bbc's coverage of the winter olympics so it was a ri- it was made to be four parts, but it was originally broadcast as two. Um, <coughs> and then for many years, when it was released on VHS, and then the first DVD release, it was the four four parts. Um, but then when it was re-released on this, uh, there was a special edition re-release, uh, which <laughs> I got signed by Janet Fielding. Um, that's you had the option to to watch the original two episode transmission of the, the four it was supposed to be in. Um, do you have a preference? Because oddly enough, I found the two-parter easier to kind of digest. Because, uh, you know, in 2020, we're used to watching 42-minute episodes of everything, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Well, to be perfectly honest, I think it actually benefits the story a lot more. I much prefer the original... Because um, for many years, I had it... In, you know, I, I was familiar with the four-part story. And it's fine, it works like that. But actually... Putting it into two forty-five minute episodes, I think, allows the story to breathe and develop better. It, it just—it's a happy accident. It, it just happens to work. So I do, I do prefer the two episodes. So, what were the episode two and episode three cliffhangers? Do you remember? I think the episode one cliffhangers when the Dalek. Episode was, one cliffhangers. Sorry, yeah. Uh, I think that was the—that's the first appearance of the Dalek in the warehouse, and there's a close-up of Peter Davison's face as he, you know. It, as you see the Dalek, and then I think 
that's the cliffhanger for that. Episode 2, I think, was the cliffhanger as it is. Stein reveals himself to be a Dalek agent. That's right. What on earth was the cliffhanger to episode 3? Mm. It's probably... Some... We'll get there. We we'll, we'll might remember. Yeah. yeah, I might remember. For the life of me, I cannot remember. I can't remember off the top of my head, but... Anyway, so... We're in the, the warehouse. The Doctor is introduced to Stein. Turlo mm. seems to vanish. Um, but that's revealed because he's inadvertently travelled down the time corridor into the onto the uh, the Dalek spaceship. And so, yeah. when the Doctor, Tegan and Stein are looking for Turlo, they come across um, a, uh, a, a small army group who have been stationed there. And it turns out it's because there were these alien canisters that were discovered and they're there to protect the alien canisters and investigate um now i'm going to sound really stupid here mm -hmm. because the alien canisters look a lot like the dalek weapon don't they yes they do yeah yeah like um which i only just kind of realized i always thought they looked more like churros you know like the spanish dessert <laughs> yes yeah yeah Anyway, yeah, I've just realised they look like the Dalek weapons <laughs> this week. I'm uh, sure that was obvious to everyone. But well, to be perfectly honest, Rob, I've only just realised now that you pointed that out. That's good. <laughs> well, just just me and you then. No, well, I mean, at least at least you clocked it. I didn't. And now that you mentioned it, you're going, yeah, bloody hell, that's glaringly obvious. That's actually a really good design. <laughs> why, why didn't I realise it before? Duh. Duh. Uh, anyway, so... The so the, the doctor now has a, a sort of like a, a group of allies with uh, with him. Uh, it just kind of make me wonder why doesn't he suggest getting in contact with the unit? But there's not enough time for that because um, a Dalek pops up and they have a fight with a Dalek. And of course you've got the the famous thing of going aim for the eyepiece and then they aim for the eyepiece and then you've got the Dalek screaming. Um, I cannot see. My my vision is impaired. I cannot see. That goes on for fifteen minutes, and then there's a big um, scramble to defeat the Dalek, which results in um, Tegan getting flattened to the floor. And it, it's a great shot. And then you have the Doctor pushing the uh, the Dalek out at the top of the warehouse onto the street, where it, uh, where it falls and explodes. Yeah. Now, this is the thing. As it turns out, this is Janet Fielding's final Doctor Who story. This is Tegan's departure. And due to this fight of the Dalek, um, she's been knocked out uh, temporarily. Um, she regains consciousness later, but there's, you know, there's a risk of concussion. And she then spends the rest of the story with a massive white plaster <laughs> stuck, to her, stuck to her forehead. And... I think this is one of the first weaknesses of the story. Um, is there? Do you, well, I wonder why she was grounded. I think mm. it's. I think it's a bit of a shame because Janet's feeling as an as as an actress, and also playing the part of Tegan, is very you know involved. Um, you know, and she was all you know she she was always there as a main part of the story, and then. For her to for her final story, she's pretty much laid low for mo most of it. You know, she's in this temporary part of the warehouse, yeah, um, and then she's just pretty much stuck in bed for most of the story, which 
That's unfortunate. Maybe they had the best intentions and they were going to have her go on, going off to do her thing. Mm. Taylor was off doing his thing. Yeah, um, it is a bit rather, rather than having them um, paired up together. Yeah, I mean, I think the story gets away with it just because she is in a state of peril. Because as it turns out, that uh, all the army officers um, are take are, are kidnapped, duplicated, and killed. They're duplicated very quickly, aren't they? Yeah, very quickly. It must be a it must be a very good process. Although uh, it is over time, we're assuming these two time periods run at the same course, but more time could have passed in the future. And the time corridor dropped them off moments after they left. You know what? What with time being relative and all that, yeah, you're, pro- yeah. you're, you're probably yeah. yes, you're probably right. That's exactly what it is. It's no, it's good. Um, so, so because then she's guarded by the Dalek duplicates who threaten either stay where you are or we will kill you, and you believe them, and so there is that constant state of of threat and menace. So I think the story gets away with it because due to that. But I do think it's a bit of a shame that um, Tegan, for the most part, is pretty much just confined to a bed for, for most of the story. Yeah. Um, but as I said, I think I think it works because this is there is a sustained threat and mood. Um, but you know, it it is what it is. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? You're right. She she is put in a situation where there's a lot of threat there and danger. But I I think. It just didn't work. Mm. Um, maybe there wasn't any real reasons behind it. Like, the, um, like but maybe there wasn't any behind-the-scenes reasons, you know? No, no, I, I'm not suggesting that. I mean, I, th- I think it's probably just one of those things where it's a, it's a shame that Eric, maybe Eric C. would could have, you know, re- you know, written that better. I don't think there's any um, any dodgy reasons for it. I think maybe it's just. It just how it turned out in the writing it's a bit unfortunate no I just I just thought I mentioned it because I do think it is one of the weaknesses of the story even though I like it I just I think in hindsight um, one of the reasons that she leaves is that she's grown tired of this lifestyle and all the death and perhaps if she'd been in a position um, to reconcile this rather than the doctor mm-hmm. um, maybe that would have been a better part to her arc yeah, I mean we'll we'll, we'll get on to that um, later on because because uh, there's, there's there's something to discuss there when it comes to actual Tegan's departure scene. But so we'll get there, um, and then so so we're cutting between what's happening in the warehouse and then what's happening on the spaceship, and it, so we transpire that um, the it, it's very interesting what's happening, how the Daleks are depicted in this story. They're they're seen as being strong tacticians. Which is good. I think that's something that had been lost f- for quite a while. Actually, this idea that you know that, that they can be military planners, and that's that's brought to the fore in this story. So that I quite like that. But they're also, despite that, in quite a weakened position. They are reliant on recruiting mercenaries, which is interesting. So that's where Lytton and his gang come in. They are, you know, they're mercenaries who've been recruited by the Daleks to. Um, to rescue Davros and the reason yeah. why um, they need Davros is because and this goes back to the previous Dalek story Destiny of the Daleks um, the Daleks were in a war with another 
race of ro uh, with a with a race of robots called the Velens. And because they both fun you know they both function completely on logic, it was a war that was locked in an impasse. But it turns out that the Mavellans won the war because they uh, created virus which uh, attacks Daleks. Yeah, it's very surprising that the Daleks decided to come to a compromise, um, compromise with their very nature. You know, the the fundamentally think of themselves think inwards uh, um, that they're the the supreme beings so to to have a coalition with humans seems a bit surprising and um, I, mm. I think the in past shows they've had the robo men but that was more down to um to the conquest and they were just the humans were simply like a utility to use yeah, yeah, and I mean, they were completely subver sub subservient to the Daleks' will. You know, these were humans who completely had their minds altered and were forced to behave uh, and fo forced to obey the Daleks directly. So, so yeah, but these were these are mercenaries who re who are recruited. Um, but I think again, so you, you're right. It's it's very interesting that the Daleks have been, you know, have to resort to using this, given their sense of superiority. But it's you know, I think from the Daleks' point of view, it's it's clearly a means to an end, and it's sort of explained, especially when the, the story is reaching its peak, that as soon as anyone um, fulfills their requirements that the Dalek needs, then they can they will just then dispose of them. Uh, it's there and there. It's there from the way that you know they've rescued Davros for a particular reason, uh, which is to uh, to provide a cure uh, for this virus. But it's it's very much hinted at that as soon as Davros has fulfilled that requirement, they'll kill him or dump him. Um, he knows this. Yeah. yeah, and and he you know and that's the thing as well. Davros knows this, so he's using the opportunity to um, to create a, a new race of Daleks, which will be completely subservient to him. And as soon as the Dalek Supreme is made aware of this and knows that Davros can't be trusted, he goes, "Well, okay, we're going to kill Davros. He cannot be trusted." So. This, you know, it's it, all this effort was for nothing. <laughs> well, yeah, well, exactly. It's one of those things. All this effort is for absolute nothing. It's just a series of, uh, it's a series of unfortunate events. Yeah, a lot can be said about. Well, you can say that about a lot of the events in this story. All the characterization that, where does it go? It ends in death. Yeah, yeah, and, and in that sense, it's it's typical. It's typical Eric Saywood because as a script editor, and certainly with, the, I think probably with the exception of the Visitation, um, every story that he wrote, um, you know, t tends to have a very high death toll, and he also tends to to work in this idea that you know things things don't necessarily work out and things can happen arbitrarily because that's what happens in real life. I mean, later on, there's a Colin Baker story, Attack of the Cybermen, where a big run of that story is you're following these uh, partially cybernized humans which still have their own will, trying to escape Telos. Um, finding a spaceship, you know, you know, we're following their story and then the, their story just ends in death. They just die. Um... And Eric Sayward has said, you know, the idea is that is that's that's tragic. Um, you know, you're supposed to feel something. You know, you, we follow these characters' hardships, only for it to end in complete futility. You know, you're meant to feel something. And it's very interesting that you know we had a, a script editor and a writer on Doctor Who who was willing to go down that route. It hadn't happened before. It hasn't happened since. 
Um, Eric, and that isn't anything to, to say against Eric Saywood because the, the, there are lots of script editors and writers of Doctor Who who have taken the show down, you know, certain routes, and it's worked. But it's just been a one-off. You know, every 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 writer and script editor has done their own thing with the show, and Eric Saywood um, had a you know, had a um, a cinematic angle to what he brought. I mean, he clearly wanted to bring a very tight, fast-paced action-adventure stories, but also be quite bleak. Um, and Do you think this method of trying to invoke this feeling with the viewers and then they've got this good characterization and then everyone dies, do you think the fact that it happened so frequently perhaps lost its effect or was it just as effective? As we'll find out later on in this story, um, all the death is starting to take its toll on the Doctor and Tegan. Mm-hmm. Do you think it works best as a one-off, or do you still do you still think it um, it holds up if it's, if it's happening quite regularly? To me, sometimes it, I can be a bit frustrated if you get to know a character and they're part of the narrative. Sometimes can seem a bit pointless because they're just killed off. It's one of those things. It, I think it really depends on the skill of the writer and the director and how the whole thing pull, you know, pulls, you know, how the whole thing is, is overall executed. Because yes, you're quite right. If if you feel that you know you're following a character's story arc and then they're just you know they're killed off and it just feels completely arbitrary, that can be very frustrating. Going well, what what was the point of that? It really depends on whether you think it's gratuitous or not. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, when we were discussing Earthshock, I mean, the big part of that is that Adric dies at the end of it. But I think I think that works. And the reason why I think it works is because, you know, he, he was a character who was with the show, you know, when Tom Baker was the, uh, was the Doctor and he's carried on into a new Doctor. You know, we've, we've, we've been with him for a few times and his whole departure is woven into the story. You know, the... the, you know, the the Doctor and Adric argue, they reconcile, they clearly enjoy each other's company, um, briefly within the story, and then Adric dies at the end of it. But also because he dies with a spaceship crashing into Earth, which destroyed the dinosaurs, which meant that man, you know, humans could then exist, you know, his death was inevitable and it couldn't be avoided. So it, it sort of ties into the science fiction. It, gives, it gives his death meaning. It yeah. gives his death meaning. It ties into the science fiction element of the show, and you know you're meant to, f- you know you're meant to, f- and it also adds to the drama of the series because, at that point, it very you know it it, it only happened with a character called Kat- Katarina in the Dark's Master Plan, which is a Hartnell story, and she was a companion who'd only been in a few episodes at that point. You know, we're supposed to feel something when when Adric dies, and indeed we do. So, it, so it works. I think the problem is with when um, Eric Saywood script editing the show in the direction he took it. I think it works very well when Peter Davison's the Doctor, because it contra- because it contrasts very well with Davison's Doctor. Davison's Doctor, you know, is someone who is who is um, you know is a man who can be broken, who can be hurt, is not perfect. But he tries to be perfect. You know, he is, he, you know, he's basically, you know, the, the, 
the pure hero in a, in a universe which is dark and nasty. And as a result of that, the Doctor shines all the more. So Eric Saywood's use of violence and dark mood works with um, making Peter Davison's Doctor shine all the more. And I think that's the reason why it works during this period. I think it becomes a bit more difficult when you, when you then have Colin Baker as the Doctor. Because Colin Baker's Doctor is much more darker, much more... Um, a bit more complicated. You know, he can, he can find... Um, he can be emotional with something relatively minor and but then completely indifferent to something quite major you know colin baker's doctor was completely alien and could be quite yeah. dark and then so it when it changes you, the changes the formula it changes the formula so when you've got colin baker's doctor colin baker performing the doctor like that and with eric saywood as the script editor with his approach maybe the show becomes a bit too hard too hard hitting mm. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, that's just my thoughts on it. That's a good point, yeah, because Davison is always, he's in these situations and he's reluctant mm -hmm. to um, have to make these choices, but he, he's forced to. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, I mean, in some respects, in terms of in terms of Eric Saywood, I mean, I know that he would later um, write. Uh, funny enough, it would be another dark story. He, he writes another um, story for, for Colin Baker's Doctor. It might be argued that this is his peak as a writer in terms of his approach for the show. I don't know. People may differ. People may say it was a bit earlier with Earthshock. People may say, no, he was... Um, it came later, I don't know. But um, but I think Eric Saywood's approach works much better with, with Davison's Doctor. But yeah, it's it's bleak and you've got... Um, so we've got, and also, I mean, the horror content in the story is is, is quite high because you haven't got all. It's not just in terms of the deaths, but um, but you've got you've got some you've got some body horror in here. So there's there's a bit when um, there's a there's a there's a virus spray which which affects people, and it basically it 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 uh, it, it, it results in this, this. This is my big memory from the story. Yeah, and it, it, it's really scary, isn't it? And the makeup uh, to reflect the viral decomposition is disturbingly effective. Yeah, and before that, they're saying, oh, what's that smell? Mm. And then we finally have the reveal. He, scenes later, he turns around to reveal his face, his fingers have gone. Yeah, well, because earlier on, because there was this, there was the battle to, to save uh, the space station being attacked by the Daleks, which is temporarily successful... But then the mercenaries uh, use this this sort of virus thing, and then mm. we, you know, they're all forced to flee. But we see that there were, there were some who didn't have a who didn't have a mask, so they succumb to it. And we see them coughing and spluttering. And then the next time we see it, their their face their faces are like bloated, but yet decomposed. It's horrible. Yes. Um, so you see the full effect of it, and then later on, yeah, you're you're in this room as you said, and you've got one person going, "What is that smell?" And then the the person she's in the room with turns round, and you're right, half his face is uh, disfigured, uh, you know, he's yeah, and he's lost two of his fingers, like part of him's falling off. It's horrible, and then yeah. she freaks out, and then as a result, she kills her friend, uh, which then alerts the, the the mercenaries to her location, and then she's you know she's gunned down. Um, you know when when you, when you hear, I mean, one of the things that this story is famous for or infamous for, depending on your point of view, is that it has a higher death count than the Terminator. <laughs> and you're going, you really? know, 
I mean, when you when we're talking about these scenes, these scenes, and he's like, yeah, they die, they get gunned down, they're massacred, and all the rest of it. I mean, it's, uh, it's. I mean, this is uh, this is depressing stuff. I mean, I think this works as a, as a as an individual story. I mean, you wouldn't want Doctor Who to be like this week in, week out. I think then it would get a bit wearing. Um, but I think uh, having a story, um, you know, is because this works on this on this one occasion and um i mean i like a lot of the characters and i think it's i, I mean I, th I think the casting of this story is another thing which is really rather strong i think the cast i think the cast in the story is, is probably one of the best um no one gives a duff performance everyone's highly memorable uh, and so you know you're following them on their long journey during the story or even their short journey and so you know when when they die and they die in horrible painful ways i mean you know when they die in the story that you know they die screaming uh a, a lot of these you know, a lot especially of the there. dalek attacks you know when people are killed by the daleks um it's a very prolonged scream yeah <laughs> yes it is it is one of those things that is it's it's a very over you know over the top yeah. death and then they eventually keel over yeah, yeah. um but there's something, you know, on its own, you you might be able to sort of laugh and just going right. Okay, this this actor's doing a very over the top death, but in the conf but in the, the context of the story, it it's it's it, it's you know, it's just bleak. Um, everyone dies and dies painfully. It's you know, this story is 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 horrific, and I think it makes the the Daleks very effective because when the Daleks are on the scene, things get serious. There's a reason why they're regarded as a threat, and why. Um, so, th you know, even though they are defeated at the end, it comes at a huge cost. And again, this is, this is very rare for for a, a Doctor Who story, even one involving the Daleks, to, to do this. I mean, I think Power of the Daleks is a good example when an, an earlier example when when that happens. I'm just trying to think of of any others when the Daleks appear on the scene and there's a very high death count. But yeah, you got Power of the Dogs, and then you, you got this. I think, you know, hard Maybe to Maybe it doesn't, doesn't happen again until um, Dalek in season five. It's a big death count there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you take you take the Daleks seriously. Because, one, the Doctor takes them seriously, but given, given what the Daleks are up to and the deaths that are involved either through them directly or through the people they have recruited... You've got to take them seriously. This story revisits something that intrigues, I think, everyone who loves the Daleks, and that is the creature inside. Earlier yes, in part yeah, yeah. one, um, mm. the Doctor, the Doctor, and the team had pushed this Dalek out of the rooftop onto the street, and since then they've brought the brought the wreckage of the Dalek back inside the warehouse, and it begins to move, mm. and the mutant inside is alive. And we get to see quite a good close-up of that um, attacking someone, don't we? Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's one of the the soldiers, and it, it it's sort of um, in some respects it's a bit of a, a recreation of one of the cliffhangers for Genesis of the Daleks. You know, when when a, a crinoid mutant attaches itself to the the Doctor's neck and he's screaming, it's sort of it could be seen as a as a recreation of that because. Yeah, you got this soldier, and you got this the Dalek mutoid, which is just latched on, <laughs> latched onto yeah. his throat. 
and he does it twice um and that could have been something that could have been uh quite comedic if they had if they hadn't got the effect right but thankfully they do i think the, the mutoid looks good and um there's something else that may be inspired by Alien. There's a moment where the Doctor has a gun and they're looking around for the the Dalek <laughs> and they lift a blanket up and there's just a cat there. <laughs> yeah, that old gag, which works. And they must have got the best cat to act because as soon as the cover's lit, it just it can't stop meowing, can it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It would have been great if it just fell from the ceiling on someone. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> The, the the Dalek, not the cat. <laughs> I got what you meant, yeah. Um, oh, maybe they missed a trick there, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought I thought I thought that was mo- that moment was effective as well. Um, were there any other standout scenes? Um, some of the deaths we've mentioned the deaths on the spaceship, but back in the warehouse, there is a sense of danger when Tegan and um, sorry, who's the girl? What's with Tegan? I've forgotten her name now. Oh, um, now. But yes, I know who you mean. She's she's like the scientific advisor with the with the army. Well, she's left behind. She gives Tegan the chance to escape. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it's another standout moment. I'll get to the point I'm making. Um, but these these Dalek canisters, the big churros that are in the crowd, um, they're carrying them over. And quite often, the actors have to act like something's heavy. <laughs> you know, they'll be carrying around a polystyrene rock and you know and after oh, hugging it around yeah. but in this instance Tegan's like oh it's quite light <laughs> like she's carrying around a balloon <laughs> um, must have been a relief <laughs> just like gotta pretend this this blue piece of uh, very light plastic is extremely heavy no it's dead light and I can juggle it around yeah yeah. Um, so anyway they hide these giant churros under the blanket um, and Tegan escapes and this other girl stays behind yeah. Um, but she's gunned down, isn't she, eventually? Hmm. That's another end to a character uh, surprising one. Yeah, because um, the they were one. clearly on the on the you know, on the same side and they were befriending each other and realised that the situation they were in and you know, wanted to try and escape, but uh I I mean, yeah, that that's something else that I mean, because she's gunned down in front of Tegan. So Tegan sees her death. And actually there's, there's something else that happens a lot earlier. It's when Tegan has managed to escape, um, thinking that she's she's heading towards the TARDIS, not really, you know, or perhaps forgetting that the TARDIS has already gone at this point. Um, but she's then pursued by um, two of uh, of the policemen who we saw at the very beginning of the story. So she runs away from them because you know you can she can see their silenced pistol, yeah. and she sees uh, a man with a metal detector on the banks of the Thames. And that's a tough moment. That's that's desperation when you've been pursued and you call for help from someone who clearly can't be of help. Um, so it's a very desperate moment for Tegan. It, yeah, it is a very desperate moment, and it's oh yeah, and it's uh, you you feel that desperation, yeah. um, through through Janet Fielding's acting and the way that she's shouting, and then she's you know she's struggling to to run down the stairs, uh, clomping around in her high heels, um. And then that that poor metal that that poor man, he's just shot dead. You know, uh, you see, you know, you see the policeman aim and shoot, and then you just cut to the man who just falls flat on his face, and then you cut to Tegan's reaction, and she's clearly distraught by it. Yeah. And then she's marched back to the warehouse, and then her friend, who, who's, whose character's name uh, completely forgotten, fortunately, 
she she tries to make a run for it, and then she's yeah. shot in the back. So Tegan might as well not have escaped and been brought back, but this really reinforces the danger, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. The, the whole scene with the metal detector guy. Yeah, oh, and yeah. it's yeah, it's, you know, it's it's desperate. It's 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 horrific, and it, mm-hmm. you know, and it just it's just this is a story with no hope whatsoever. Why is this my favorite story? My God, I'm, <laughs> you're I'm, a strange I'm, person. I'm a strange, thoroughly depressing person. Yeah. <laughs> God, why? Yeah, why do I like this story? Oh, I think it says more about me than perhaps I want yeah. to. <laughs> you're the type of guy who goes to London and you're depressed because it's a sunny day. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's a story. With, no, no one comes out of this story particularly well. I mean, um, I mean, the, the, the Daleks, are, you know, the, the Daleks are defeated. Um, actually, there is one character who comes out of this well. <laughs> um, I'll get onto that later. But uh, you know, because you know Davros is you know is has managed to to get the you know the, the virus and then and then turn that into many grenades and is successful in killing the daleks who were going to kill him but yeah. then but then he seems to be affected by the virus as well yes davros is affected by the virus isn't he i'm not sure how to interpret this because this virus attacks the daleks and they start foaming out from inside and Davros didn't suspect this, but it affects him in the same way, and he's screaming, I'm not a Dalek. Mm. Now, what is this? what does this mean to, to us as the viewer? Is this meant to be more, quite symbolic? Um, because Davros doesn't identify himself as a Dalek. Um, he created them, he wants to control them. Does this say more about him as a person? Is this, <laughs> do, you, do you get where I'm going with this? Is this meant to imply he's more more of a Dalek than he thought he was? Probably. I mean, the, I mean, the thing is, I mean, clearly he created the Daleks in his own image because, you know, the, you know, he creates the Daleks. Yet he's the, you know, we wrote and goes, oh, the, he he's he 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 scuttles around in the bottom of a Dalek, but obviously he created the look of the Daleks in his own image. Yeah, I mean, of course they share the same lineage. Yeah, well, that's another, thing. that's another thing as well. Maybe the, the virus latches onto uh, an aspect of, of Carla's DNA that he didn't bargain for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, maybe it's that, or yeah, maybe it, it's. Maybe... Pro- it's quite probable. I mean, as human beings, we share 90% of our DNA with the banana. So, um... yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you get what I'm saying. Someone, uh, so, so, <laughs> something that attacks, attacks bananas could attack us. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> All right. Okay. So if it attacks the Daleks, of course it could attack um, a Khaled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not the analogy I think I was going for. But, so. Actually. <laughs> yeah. Now put like that, my theory sounds ridiculous. Um, actually, because the, the, there is, I mean, one thing that every. Um, story that that Davros is in there's always a moment that between the doctor and Davros sounding off and we you know we 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 get a scene with that where the idea is that the doctor is going to execute Davros there's a moment where the doctor is holding this gun to Davros 
<laughs> to his face. And the gun is a Dalek-style weapon designed to be handheld. Yeah. And Peter Capaldi does the same thing to Davros, doesn't he? With a Dalek gun. Oh, yes, he does. It just reminded me of that when, when I was watching it. I was thinking, oh, this happens again. <laughs> <laughs> I completely forgot about that. It's, it's, it's good that you're here to remind me. Yeah, yeah, no, you know, you're right. He, do, he does do that. But usually the idea between um, the scenes between the Doctor and, and Davros is that they basically have an intellectual argument from where the other's coming from. Yeah. I mean, arguably the best one is the first one that they have back in Genesis of the Daleks. I mean, this scene packs a punch where, I mean, I quite like it with, um, especially with the way that Peter Davison delivers the line, which is like, I'm not here as your, ex- I'm not here as your prisoner, Davros, but your, your executioner. Brilliant moment where Davros is completely unaware that he's that the Doctor's not a prisoner. And then he just takes the weapon casually in. Is it Stein that's with him? Yeah. Um, to his to his right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good moment. Good moment where the Doctor just turns it around. Yeah, and I mean, there's some there's some nice lines in there, you know, with um, if oh, what does Davros say? He says it, it you know, um, like all time lords, you're soft, and uh, if I were you, I w- I'd be dead. You know, and uh, the doctor says, uh, "I lack your practice." Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think it's. I, I mean, I don't think it's probably the best Doctor versus Davros scene that there is. No, um, but it's interesting seeing how Davros um, behaves during the scene because as soon as the gun is held on Davros, um, he tries to. I don't know if he tries to weasel his way out of it, but he tries to legitimize what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants he wants to change the Daleks um, to be better from his from his perspective at least. Yeah, I mean, I think he's he's trying to uh, tell the Doctor what he wants to hear, and we all know Davros is talking crap. Uh, we know exactly where he's coming from, and he's just trying to save his own skin. The Doctor knows that as well, but this being the fifth Doctor, and you can tell with the way that Peter Davison's uh, playing the part. Even though he knows Davros is talking crap, he wants to believe it. Do you think? I think so. So I think it's, uh, I mean, as I said, I don't think it's arguably the best scene between the Doctor and Davros that, you know, when you compare it to other stories. But in terms of the story itself, it works. There's some good lines in there and it's dramatic. And uh, both actors, Malloy and Davison, played very well. Yeah. Malloy conveys a lot. Mm-hmm. Since he's just a guy in a chair with a rubber mask on, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, so there are duplicates of Tegan and Taylor, aren't there? Yes. And what happens to those? They'd be blown up because the the ship yes. gets blown up at the end. Now, funnily or... enough, <laughs> no, no, go on, yeah, yeah. Well, or or was Tegan replaced? <laughs> and as a Dalek, as a, as a Dalek sleeper agent. She decides to leave the leave the TARDIS crew <laughs> and uh, hide herself in, in society with the policeman. <laughs> My brain hurts now. Um, yeah. And the real Tegan is still out there. I know she got blown up like Adric. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rob. I completely lost my train of thought now. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for that. Oh, jeez. That's a, that's a line of thought that we... Um, oh. Big finish, sort that one out, will you? Yeah. <laughs> you come up with I just, something. I just thought that there has to be more reason to those duplicates that were seen. Uh, maybe it was just to show that the Daleks could do it. 
Yeah, I mean, it was funny because when, you know, for years when I watched this story, I mean, this was before the show came back in 2005. You know, I mean, there's a lot going on with the story, enough as it is, without the, without the Daleks going, and now we're going to duplicate you, so then you can assassinate the High Council of the Time Lords. And you're just going, what? Why? Oh, it's a that's a plotline we don't need. Yeah. And then, and I never thought it made any sense, until, funnily enough, the show comes back, and you've got all the stuff for the Time War. Mm. Then I thought, now it makes sense. Yes. So it, it took the show coming back and all the time will for, for a plot element of Resurrection of the Daleks to make sense rather than this is just an arbitrary plot line thrown in for no good reason whatsoever. Uh, they put some thought to it. <laughs> and when, when when Tegan does finally come back in the in the new series, um, maybe the sleeper agent can finally awaken. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a flashback to the duplicate scene and when, when there was the when there was a big kind of switcheroo. It all went down. You see, the th- Eric Seaver play. This is a future-proof story. The most Doctor Who, the more Doctor Who stories we have, the more resurrection of the Daleks makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then, then there'll be a bit of an emotional dilemma. Like, do do you acknowledge this new Tegan as Tegan because Stein? wasn't the original version of himself he was a duplicate but his humanity came through didn't it well it's a tough y- one well you know in uh, Capaldi's last story uh-huh. um, is that the real Bill because it's a I glass th- figurine of, of, of Bill's memories well, I, I or... think it's not the real Bill but um, it's a culmination of her memories Oh yeah, it's a combination of memories, but but also the memories after her after her her departure as well. Yeah, Hmm. Uh, that's it's a tough one. Is a person a person with the absence of something more than just a memory, like a a soul or a spirit? You know, I don't know. (laughs) This is a the whole of the conversation. I think. How do you define a person? (laughs) Are we going to start our own theological podcast now? discussing profound philosophical questions I think we need to backtrack now <laughs> <laughs> right what do we need to go back to oh yes sorry you were mentioning um, yes Bill in Capaldi's last story <laughs> yeah that, uh, let's move on let's move yes. on from that we don't need to con- contemplate these uh, these deep philosophical questions yeah um, so any lingering thoughts about resurrection well at this point because we're you know we're wrapping the the story up and uh, you know you know um, the Dalek thing Davros thinks he's defeated the Daleks, uh, which he has, uh, but he's defeated himself in the process. Um, the um, the Daleks are on a last um, on you know they're trying to salvage as much of their plan as possible. You've got uh, Lytton realizing you know where everything's going. So, um, you know, he's going, right, I'll, I'll use this, you know, the earliest opportunity to uh, escape the Daleks. Um, and the stakes are really high. So in order for, because now, you know, we've got the Daleks uh, taking the fight on Earth, the Dalek has, to, um, the Doctor has to use the virus and the canisters against the Daleks. Whilst the Daleks are fighting, because now, now you've got Davros-controlled Daleks and the, uh, Daleks loyal to the supreme Dalek um, 
I've said Dalek too many times now. I feel a bit weird. Um, it just loses all meaning. Yeah. Oh, it does. Yeah, yeah. It's just bizarre. So anyway, yeah. Got the Davros controlled lot. The ones that uh, follow the Supreme Dalek. They're fighting against each other. And then they're fighting against the duplicates. And then there's also... You've got the mercenaries who are who are fighting in amongst the, all of this. So it, it turns into a bit of a bloodbath at the end. Even Stein doesn't know where he fits in. Remember, there's that scene... Um, where he's like, it's okay, there are people, but... <laughs> yes, but the... yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's sort of like, even even Stein gets confused and there's a character with him going, what are you talking about there with the dogs? Like, oh yeah, shit. <laughs> then, and, then, and then they all die, but Stein, <laughs> Stein still hangs around. And then he decides uh, he needs to, to blow up the ship, so he goes to the self-destruct chamber and deal with all that. He blows up the space uh, space station, so that should be all the Daleks and Davos destroyed. Yep. Um, so that's that. Um, but you've still got the Dalek <laughs> that fight happening in the warehouse I was talking about before. That turns into a bloodbath. The Doctor yes. only manages to stop it by releasing the virus, which destroys the Daleks. Um, now, when I said before, this is a story without any hope whatsoever. There is one. <laughs> there is one character who manages to get with it get away with everything unscathed well actually there's three of them Lytton uh, who I think is probably one of the most interesting characters within this story I mean the fact that you've got this mercenary character working with the Daleks but he's played superbly, superbly well he, he's great um, and he manages to escape and he joins up with his two police buddies and that's it you know you yeah. just see see them walking walking down the street reenacting the uh, original credits for the bill yeah very <laughs> ominous and of course we have that scene on board the TARDIS where the supreme Dalek talks on the on the on the monitor and he says the Dalek agents are already there ready to bring down society yeah which I think is a really interesting disturbing idea and yeah. it's feel, it feels like one of those things I think it's a great idea and I'm pleased it's in the story but it feels a bit sort of throw away because we knew that we had the you know these Dalek duplicates but they just felt like they were just a just a, a means to create a sort of small mercenary army that the Daleks needed all of a sudden mm. it's then thrown at the very end of oh no they got this bigger purpose yeah um, so it feels a bit sort of thrown away I mean the, the, you know there's enough there's enough plot going on without and then we've got this other thing but you know it's fine. It, you know it works within within the confines of the you know with how that scene plays out. So, and then are we getting towards the departure now? Yeah. Tegan decides she's had enough mm. of this life. Too much death. It's it's too much to cope with. I think. Yeah, I mean, given given the deaths that, I mean, the story's just littered with lots of deaths, and you know she's seen she's she's had two people shot down in front of her then when she could because she she later goes on to the space uh, the Dalek space station uh, briefly during the course of the story she um, just before she's uh, re just before she rejoins the doctor she would she would have seen uh, the the so the original soldiers all dead because you know they're dead and they're just dumped in that room um, you know so she would have seen that so she's seen dead bodies and two people just brutally shot down in front of her and um I mean, it's 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 interesting with Tegan because I mean, it works within the confines of this story, but um, it's there throughout throughout really her entire time. So you know, when she when she was introduced in Logopolis, 
you know, um, her aunt is murdered by the master. Yeah. In terms of this, see, you know, and then you've got all the the action and the venture and the following stories and the danger that she's put in. Then, at the beginning of this season, season twenty one, you know, she wit she witnessed two reptile races massacred in Warriors of the Deep. It's really no surprise that she wanted to leave. Yeah, the the awakening has has this 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 monster which seems to you know bring ghosts and is surrounded by death. Um, you know, she, she's almost burnt alive. Uh, in that you know that story, and now many other good people have been shot down in front of us. So it's it, I mean, so as I said, it works within the confines of the story. But if you take it during the time that she's been with the Doctor, you know you can you can understand why all that all that mounts up, and um, she now decides to leave. Now the Doctor takes this is that he understands um, where she's coming from, and mm. perhaps um, things do need to change. So, um, do you think Tegan's departure has an impact on the Doctor as a person? Uh, of course, he's he's had to face some big moral moral dilemmas in this story. He, he's had to make some tough tough decisions. Do you think he is a different person after this story? For what more we'll see of Davison? Uh, yeah, because uh, there's only two more stories he, he did after this uh, Planet of Fire, and then this final one, The Caves of Androzani. Yeah. I, sort of, I would say yes and no. Um, I mean, he's aware that he, he needs to change his ways, but it's it, maybe it reaches a peak with with him in his final story because it you know he makes a huge point uh, in the case of Androzani of. Um, holding back his regeneration so he can rescue Perry um, and he rescues Perry someone he barely knows at the uh, you know um, at the risk of his own life and death is a big part of Davison's regeneration scene I mean not just in terms of the doctor but I mean the fact that he is haunted by by every you know you know all his all his previous companions in that incarnation and his last life the last thing that the fifth doctor says is adric you know he's you know so he's haunted by um you know he's haunted by tegan who left at this the end of this story because she was you know uh, exhausted uh, and disenchanted um with being with the doctor because of all the deaths uh, you know adric who died at, uh, Nissa left because um, she 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 saw an opportunity to to cure people, but at the risk of her own life. So she may have died. And then you know, as far as the doctor was concerned, he's the fifth doctor was concerned. He saw the master burn to death in Planet of Fire, and the and, you know, and the, he he's haunted by the master during his regeneration. So probably you know it probably all surmounts up and then you know um, and reaches a peak in that way I think. Okay, so listeners' responses. Um, only got a handful. I don't know what it is. It's, it's happened before where um, uh, some of the stories that I picked don't seem to get an awful lot of responses. But uh, but I, uh, I really appreciate those who got in contact. So Mike Clark got in contact and said uh, about resurrection of the Daleks. I think I was lucky that I was watching Doctor Who growing up as it was growing with me. Its darker, grittier themes kept me watching as I realised as a 14-year-old that the world was dark and in a gritty place. Resurrection is relentlessly grim, but so much the better for it. 
Eric Sayward is a brilliant writer, my most favourite after Christopher H. Bigmead. It was heartbreaking to see Tegan leave, but all things must come to an end. Um, yeah, I think that sums it up. I think this story is definitely dark and gritty. Uh, yeah, and it's it's relentlessly grim. And Eric Sayward was a very good script editor and, and, and writer for the show. Uh, I'm pleased that Christopher H. Bidney's getting mentioned there because I, I love the stuff he wrote as, as well as being for a script editor. I think Logopolis is a much better story than um, perhaps people give it credit for. If anyone has the opportunity, because um, I listened to this years ago and I was really impressed with it, um, Christopher Hamilton Bidney did an audio book of uh, Logopolis because he, he, he novelised it as well uh, as one of the target range. If you ever get the opportunity, listen to him read his own story. Uh, he's a great narrator. He, he tells the story very effectively and you get him reading his own prose of Logopolis and it, it's fantastic. Um, okay. So just a recommendation there. Jacob Dinkle said, The best part of every Davros story is the face-to-face -face scenes with the Doctor. This story probably has the weakest of those scenes. Terry Malloy is good, but gets way better. I like I like the idea of a base under siege, but it's it's the Dalek sieging. The guest star is mostly great, and it's a bummer that this was Tegan's last story, as everything with her was pretty lame in this one. Um, I agree I think with you. On that, both points, we agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I definitely agree that you know Terry Malloy was good, but does get better. And I think even though he's barely in the story, I think he's he's superb in Remembrance of the Daleks. I mean that. You know, in his, you know, when it's finally revealed, and that 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 scene that he has with um, with the Seventh Doctor is is brilliant, and yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think the, the Davros and Doctor scene in the story is probably one of the weakest compared to other stories, but I, th I think it works. And yeah, it's um, it, it's like what I said before. Tegan has very little to do in this story, and, and when she does get involved, which is actually nearing her departure. Uh, you know, at least at least there's you know you know some stuff that happens, and I think that the, the, I think that the scene itself was quite good. And we also asked, do you think Resurrection of the Daleks was a fitting departure for Tegan? Um, we, we just got one response from this from from uh, Hike, who said, "No, I had my problem with that running off BS already in the Baker years. Suddenly, out of nowhere, she had enough." Why don't you give characters a final bow with respect? Nope, run off. I kind of see where you're coming from. Um, I think the worst, certainly because it mentions the Tom Baker years, I think the worst was probably Leela leaving at uh, the Invasion of Time. Yes, Suddenly she's fallen in love and decides to get married to, to a Time Lord and that's it, she's just left on Gallifrey. And I, th I think that was weak. Um... It sort of happens at the end of Warriors Warriors Gate with Romana, but I but I don't mind that as such because it's hinted at in episode one of that story when she's talking to Adric. What if she left the Doctor? So it's sort of hinted that she's thinking about going her own way, and she's very strong and independent, and um, just that. Right, I'm no longer with you. See you. Uh, it sort of works, but I know what you mean. I think um, having something build up and get woven into the story a bit more is much more effective but i think the scene itself where tegan leaves in resurrection of the daleks i think is, is quite good and emotional i think the problem is it's like what we said before is tegan's um pretty much confined to her bed for most of the story 
and I think that's when I think that's the most disappointing thing because actually her reason for leaving I think is pretty much sound you know you can get why she's sick of all the death and what she's witnessed in this story I think you know it, it makes sense but perhaps she deserved better yeah and she does um, she does come back when the TARDIS materialises doesn't she um, and she kind of mutters the whole um, Braveheart Tegan uh, yes obviously and... Doctor yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Maybe, you know, she just, I'll see that, you know, the TARDIS depart. Um, I hate to think that she changed her mind. It, it is quite emotional because, I, I, you know, I like I like Tegan as a character and I like Janet, Janet Fielding's performance. And I think that last scene in terms of how it's written and how it's acted and the music uh, makes it effective. But as I said, I think it would have been quite nice had Tegan been in the story a bit more. I mean, the thing is, Resurrection of the Daleks has an awful lot of characters in it. I mean, you you could actually argue that Turlo gets a bit shortchanged as well. Um, but at least he's able to interact with one of the characters a bit more. Uh, it is what it is. It's not as if we could change yeah. it now. So, um, just as a, a conclusion, Rob, what your sort of just uh, your brief thoughts on the story and what score would you give it? I was quite excited to revisit this story. Um... I'd forgotten that, or rather, I've come to realise that the exchanges with the Doctor and Davros aren't quite as good as I remembered. Um, mm. Like you said, maybe the one in Remembrance is a lot better. It's a, it's a lot more memorable, the dialogue mm. at least. Yeah. I think I had this iconic vision in my mind of the Doctor holding this gun over Davros and the exchange was a bit of a blur. Um, I think... For a lot of reasons, I would mark this story down a bit, but I'd also mark it up slightly because it's quite um, it's quite a brutal story and quite graphic. <laughs> mm. So I'm gonna give it uh, a generous eight out of ten, which I think is fair. No, no, that's fine. I just find that interesting because you've scored it higher than Earthshock. Then, because didn't you give Earthshock seven? I did give it a seven. Um, I would have gave this story a seven had it not been for the um, the violence. Not that I, not that I like violence, <laughs> but just the fact that it was quite a daring story and it um, raised the bar and took a risk. Yeah, I think I'm gonna stick with an eight. All right, no, no, that's fine. I think yeah, I think um, I think it's the the tone and the atmosphere and the risks that this the story has that that gives it a lift. But it's it's a bit funny because. You know, I thought, right, this is my favourite Peter Davison story. And then when I was watching it for the purposes of the podcast, I was going, hmm, have I made have I made the right decision? Because, you know, I love The Visitation. I think you know, that's one of my all-time favourites, you know, uh, Earthshock alike, as, as we discussed. Um, but then there are, there are other stories which aren't as favourably looked upon in the fandom, but I genuinely have an affection for. So it was like Ark Infinity's one... I really love the King's Demons, and then when I was watching this, I'm going, "Do I really like this story?" Uh, I do, um, but maybe, maybe not as much as I thought I initially did. Although I still like it, um, I think the the story of it's fine, um, but yeah, it's the it's the direction and the tone and the atmosphere, and yeah, it's. It is bloody violent, and uh, 
that is actually in a strange way one of the appeals of the story um because it's doctor who taking that risk um i've scored it a little bit less than you have and funny enough uh, i've i've given it a seven out of ten that's good my gut feeling did say seven but i couldn't justify that because it's because uh, it did raise the bar in some respects. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, that's good. I think any negative feelings um, towards it, I think we both agree on the way um, the way it's lacking in some respects. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's still a it's still a, a gripping, engaging, fast-paced story, and I think for the weaknesses, there's still an awful lot to admire in it. Um, you know, I'd you know. I'm, yeah, I've watched it over the years and, and will continue to, you know, to return to it uh, on occasion. It's arguably Doctor Who at its bleakest. I'm pleased that at least it took that risk, and it's it's interesting. And uh, you know, that they pulled it off. They pulled it off very well. And I think not only that, I think it also, I think the cast as well is is perfect. I think every every actor big or small in this is is very memorable um and i love how you know at the very beginning of it i love how they're still smoking cigars in the future um so so yeah there's there's an awful there's an awful lot to like and um you know Lytton's a great character um so yeah it's mm-hmm. it's not perfect but it it does you know it has a lot of good it has enough good ingredients to you know to um uh, to keep you interested well, um, a big thank you for listening and thank you to Liam for picking this story and talking about it. Please get in touch and follow us online. We have a great website, cloisterbellpodcast.com, um, where you can find all of our podcasts archived there and all the respective links for social media. Um, we're on facebook.com forward slash cloisterbell. We're on Twitter at podcastbell, Instagram cloister underscore bell, and you can find us on YouTube. Um, a portion of our podcasts do go on to YouTube. We don't do that every week, um, although I'm I'm working on it. <laughs> it does take time, and of course we are on Discord as we mentioned earlier. Um, you can there's an open invite if you go to cloisterbellpodcast.com forward slash Discord. You're welcome to join, and please do give us a review. Um, we'd love to know what you think. Um, make it an honest review. Um, we are on Apple Podcasts. That's a very easy way to do. If you have an Apple device, or if you have a computer, smartphone, or whatever, you can go to a website called Podchaser. We're on there. You can review our podcast. You can also review individual episodes as well. A star rating out of five, and you can even say a few words if you like. Um, would really appreciate that. So next time on the podcast is my turn to pick a Doctor Who story. And it's my one of my favourite Colin Baker stories. So I'm going to go for a, another Eric Sayward story. It is Revelation of the Daleks. Ooh. I, d- I didn't know which one you were going to pick. Um, right, okay. Inter- yeah, interesting choice. It's uh, I'm, oh, I'm looking forward to this one. Right, okay. Excellent. Yeah. Good choice, Rob. So two consecutive Dalek stories. Compare those. <laughs> yeah. Which is better. It's a very bizarre one, very different, very unique. Mm. A lot to like, um, perhaps a lot to dislike. Uh, 
each to their own. Um, so we're going to crack on, do some preparation for that, and we'll you can hear from us next week, hopefully. So until then, um, well, over to Liam. Uh, you're, the, you're the main man today. <laughs> I, know, I just feel like we're just going to drag this on for as long as possible, but it's just, no, it's time to wrap up. No, um... <laughs> Yes, uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, as Rob said before, there, there are many ways to get in contact with us. Please please do. We love hearing from you. And until then, um, so long for now. <laughs> <laughs>